God's Word says this, Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. For the gain from her is better than gain from silver and her profit better than gold. She is more precious than jewels and nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand and in her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. Those who hold her fast are called blessed. Would you pray with me? Uh, Gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you tonight asking that you would help us to gain wisdom. To gain wisdom. God, you say in your word that, God, you are delighted to give those who ask for wisdom, that which they ask for, if they do so without a half-hearted desire for it. And so, God, we, we submit to your authority, knowing that you are the one who is delighted to give us wisdom, understanding. God, would you grow in us a desire for how to apply the things that you would have to teach to us, God, would you bless uh, this evening and all the evenings that will follow as we learn at the feet of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount. God, would you bless us as we hear from your word and aim to apply it to our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Before we get started, uh, I just want to articulate what you're probably feeling. Uh, This is strange. Uh, We're spread out. some of us have masks on, um, and we want to rejoice. And, and I loved hearing you sing these songs of worship and praise of who God is and what He continues to do in our lives in this, this time of uncertainty. But at the same time, we know things aren't the way we want them to be. Uh, things aren't the way that we're, we would have them to be. And so just as much as we want to rejoice, uh, we also, there is a bit of sorrow knowing that there are some people who aren't in this room that we would like to see be in this room. Um, We're not as close as we would like to be. We still have a ways to go, but an encouragement to you is we're headed in the right direction, right? This is good, and this is something worth rejoicing in. And it is a delight to see your faces in real life, instead of on a screen. Um, sorry for those that are zooming in, but we're glad you're here too. Um, so please hear me say, uh, let's, let's be open-handed with this night um, as we take one night at a time, one week at a time, knowing that anything could change. Be gracious to us as we attempt to do this in a way that would glorify God and keep your health and safety in mind. But please, be open-handed with this. Guard your heart. And let's just take every night for what it's worth as we worship the triune God. Amen? Amen. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, open up to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Uh, we will be looking at the Sermon on the Mount. 
The Sermon on the Mount is in Matthew's Gospel. Scripture tells us that Matthew was a tax collector uh, and then became a follower of Jesus Christ, a disciple. And he wrote the Gospel, his Gospel, primarily to a Jewish audience, portraying Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah. The passages that precede the Sermon on the Mount have to do with Jesus recruiting His disciples and then uh, ministering to crowds. It is important to note that Matthew doesn't become a disciple of Jesus until after, a few chapters after the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, We can assume a number of scenarios to justify his recording of the sermon. Matthew may have been present in the crowd in not yet a disciple, as we'll see shortly that both crowds and the disciples were his target audience in this sermon. Matthew may have recorded the teachings of Jesus as a symbolic sermon that combined much of the material that Jesus did teach in his time of ministry. Maybe Matthew wasn't present for the Sermon on the Mount, but he recorded the experience told by the disciples that were. Regardless, Matthew is inspired by the Holy Spirit when he writes what he writes, recording the teachings of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. And so we look at the first two verses of chapter 5, which say this, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, His disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, all right, let's pause. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain. Uh, One commentator writes, Jesus is seeking a place befitting of his weighty words. He's doing something special. Mountains have a huge part to play in the Gospel of Matthew because great things happened on mountains in Israel's history. Remember, Matthew is writing primarily to a Jewish audience. So by setting this sermon on a mountain, Matthew is likely equating Jesus' teachings to the event in the Old Testament where Moses receives the law of God on Mount Sinai only to then deliver it to God's people. But there's another element we need to notice. Jesus sits down to teach. This communicates His continual presence on the mountain throughout His teaching. Jesus is surrounded by his disciples as well as the crowds who are hanging on every word that he has to say. As we'll see at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the crowds, they come away astonished. What Matthew implies from these first two verses, before Jesus even starts teaching, is that When Jesus ascends to sit with His disciples, 
he does so as both king and philosopher. When Jesus ascends to sit with his disciples, he does so as both king and philosopher. And you might be saying, Cross, I don't know what two verses you just read, but I didn't see king or philosopher mentioned in either one of them. I totally understand. That's why I said he implies it, right? But I do have some explaining to do. Jesus as king. The kingdom of God, also known as the kingdom of heaven, is a major theme throughout the gospel of Matthew. Matthew definitely portrays Jesus as the long-awaited king initiating his long-awaited kingdom. Look at chapter 4 of Matthew, verse 17. It says, From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This verse summarizes Jesus' whole preaching on that one phrase, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven heaven is at hand. Basically, his kingdom is coming. Just a few verses later in verse 23 of the same chapter, it says, and he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom. His kingdom is coming. This idea of kingdom continues on in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus covers his first topic, the Beatitudes, which we'll study uh, in greater detail next week. He says in verse 3 at the front of the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then skip down to verse 10 at the end of the Beatitudes. He says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There he bookends the Beatitudes with the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven. And then we get to chapter 5, verse 20. Where Jesus makes one of the boldest statements in the Sermon on the Mount. From it we see he isn't a mere prophet foreshadowing the kingdom that is to come. He says in verse 20, as he's speaking about the law, he says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the church staff, the most devoted church staff member you know, or the most devoted pastor you know, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Who has the authority to say this? This is no mere messenger or teacher, but the king who reigns over the scribes, the Pharisees, the church staff, and the pastor. But then you get to Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, at, towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says one of the most frightening statements in all of Scripture. Chapter 7, verse 21 says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father, who is 
in heaven. Who can speak about the kingdom like this but the king? When Jesus ascends to sit with his disciples, he does so knowing full and well there will come a day when he again ascends to sit with his disciples, but not just from a mountain, but from a throne for all eternity. In His kingdom, Jesus is King. But He is also philosopher. So let's look at Jesus as philosopher. We see this most clearly in His relationship with His disciples. Even from the very beginning. Look again at chapter 4. And look at verse 19. Chapter 4. Verse 19, and he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Fishers of men. The term fishers of men was not new. One commentator writes, Greek and Roman philosophers had used that term to describe the work of the man who seeks to catch Others by his teaching and his persuasion. Aristotle, Plato, Socrates, or if you're a fan of Bill and Ted's excellent adventure, Socrates. Right? These were fishers of men three centuries before Jesus started recruiting his disciples. These men made it their life's work to figure out the purpose of life and how to achieve ultimate happiness. Generally, they all agreed to some extent that the only hope for the flourishing that all humans long for is to pursue virtue, practiced and developed wisdom. Learned over time. This is why I had us read from the book of Proverbs for our scripture reading. You'll remember Proverbs 3.13 said, Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. The Sermon on the Mount is considered wisdom literature. It is a genre within a genre. Uh, Matthew gives his audience a narrative of the life of Jesus and then pauses to give us a collection of his teachings. It would be like reading your favorite fantasy novel and then finding a cookbook of recipes of magical cuisine right there in the middle. Or it's like reading a biography. And in the middle of the the biography, you have uh, a um, weekly routine a recording of the weekly routine of the subject in the middle of the biography. It's a marvelous taste or glimpse into the story or into someone's life. There is a reason that the Sermon on the Mount is one of the most popular portions of Scripture in all the world, including from a secular standpoint. 
It's because it's a, a deep dive of the greatest philosopher's strategy for how to achieve flourishing as a human being. So I want to pause here. I want to answer the question that you should be asking. If Jesus is king, why does he have to be a philosopher? If Jesus is king, why does he have to be a philosopher? Why hasn't our king reigned in such a way that human flourishing is automatic? Well, you and I would agree that things are not the way they should be, right? Even though the, the king who was good to create citizens who were at perfect peace with him and each other, even though he created citizens and was good to do so, his citizens rebelled against him because they wanted to reign like him. The Bible calls this rebellion sin or lawlessness. We do not abide by the law of the king and the punishment is death. But the king is a good king and he cares for his lawbreaker citizens. Not wishing for any to perish. He descended the throne to teach His people a better way. He recruited some of the worst lawbreakers to be shining examples for how to be citizens in the kingdom. The king philosopher reigns from a position of wisdom, not tyranny. He cares far more about teaching His people than enforcing right behavior. And so we see the King Philosopher invites us to build our lives upon His teaching and His example. The King Philosopher invites us to build our lives upon His teaching and his example. So I, I want to do something a little weird and look at the very last passage of the Sermon on the Mount. Chapter 7, verses 24 through 27. The last passage of the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus delivers to the crowds and the disciples Verses 24 through 27, Jesus says this. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Jesus finished the Sermon 
on the mount with a parable. A story showing how to enter into and live in the kingdom of God. What Jesus is after here is the necessity of wholeness. Wholeness. Not holiness, but wholeness. Values stability over appearance. Wholeness values stability over appearance. The wise man builds his house upon the rock. The foolish man did not. Let me ask you a question. Which house do you think looked nicer? You may say that's a strange question. The the parable didn't tell us anything about how the houses looked. But you can imagine... What did the foolish man spend his housing budget on if not the foundation? Made it possibly made it want to look nice. People who aren't whole must fill that void with the appearance of wholeness. I'll say that again just in case you didn't get it. People who aren't whole need to fill that void with the appearance of wholeness. It's all about the image. Meanwhile, whole people have done the deep, unseen, necessary work of building their lives upon a firm foundation of faith and the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's what they have built their lives upon. So that when the storms come, and they will come, they don't even flinch at the sound of thunder. Have you built your life upon the rock? Have you prized the teachings of Jesus Christ? Or have you put on a show? If the last five months have shown us anything. It's who has firmly established their lives upon the teachings of Jesus Christ and who have not. Do you remember that last line in the parable? And great was the fall of it. I read a statistic where researchers surveyed over 5,000 young adults between June 24th and June 30th. And what they found is that one out of four young adults had had suicidal thoughts in the past month. One out of four. And great was the fall of it. But Jesus isn't just after wholeness. He desires wisdom, the application of his teachings. And so we see wisdom values practice over apathy. Wisdom values practice over apathy. His story drives home a familiar point. Don't just be hearers, but be doers. James, the half-brother of Jesus, would write something almost identical to that decades later. As he writes in James 1, 22, 
but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. He's saying you walk in self-deception when you merely hear and you do not do. The wise and the foolish are distinguished on the basis of how they respond to the words of Jesus. The call is for us not merely to believe in the teachings of Jesus or merely believe that Jesus existed, but to practice what we are taught in light of one marvelous truth. Are you ready for it? Jesus lived up to every iota of what he taught, of his own teachings. He lived up to every ounce of it. Jesus, the king philosopher, presented himself as the authority figure on God's revelation and the path to human flourishing. But what's truly miraculous is that Jesus lived out exactly what he taught. One scholar writes, in accord with both the Jewish and the Greco-Roman traditions, a king was understood to be the living law, the leading philosopher who rules and rules righteously precisely because he is the epitome of wisdom and virtue. Isn't that interesting? From both the Jewish tradition and the Greco-Roman, that he would be a king and a philosopher, the living law, the epitome of wisdom and virtue. I want to return to why Jesus must be our king philosopher. Why must he be our king philosopher? Once citizens, now rebels, we are enemies of the king. Our good king has reigned and lived righteously, and yet we have broken his law and are deserving of death. He stooped from his throne to teach us a better way. But not only that, our righteous king sacrificed himself to take the penalty for our crimes. To show us the true path to life everlasting. And it is a it is a path of wholeness and a path of wisdom. And so we, you and I, must pursue lives of wholeness and wisdom as we practice the words of the king philosopher. We must pursue lives of wholeness and wisdom by practicing the words of the king philosopher. Matthew concludes the Sermon on the Mount with the crowd's response in verses 28 and 29. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished. They were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority 
and not as their scribes. It's a good ending. I'll be honest. There's one aspect that I don't like about Matthew's ending to the Sermon on the Mount. At the beginning, you saw that it's because of the crowds that Jesus went and sat, ascended and sat with His disciples. And here at the end, Matthew gives us the response of the crowds. But that's not really what I'm interested in. If you're like me, you want to know, what did the disciples think? Now, I can only speculate as to why Matthew ended it the way he ended it, why he left this part out. I think it's because we see how the disciples responded in the following chapters. That they weren't like the crowds who were merely hearers and were astonished at this teacher with authority. But they were aiming to be doers. That they they wanted to keep hearing and keep putting into practice that which they learned. They wanted to pursue wholeness and wisdom as the king philosopher was willing to give it. So much so that they followed him for the rest of their lives. And then one day, standing before them on another mountain, was the king philosopher who had sacrificed himself for their crimes and who was raised from the dead to conquer and defeat death. And here, the king philosopher stood before them on a mountain saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples. Not be disciples. Make disciples. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And teaching. Do you catch that? Teaching others to obey what I have commanded you. And then the king philosopher makes an astonishing promise. Be sure of this. I will be with you until the end of the age. Until the coming of my kingdom. But that's just speculation. Have you built your life upon the rock of the teachings and the saving work of Jesus Christ? The disciples did. They did the deep, unseen, necessary work. And they were better for it. They saw the path to human flourishing. They pursued wholeness and wisdom as the king philosopher was willing to give it. Are you? Have you built your house upon the rock?